All right, well, by way of introduction, open up to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And as mentioned on uh, group, me, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to kind of uh, do more of a topical approach tonight rather than go through a book. Uh, and this comes from, I asked a question in small group last week, hey, what's something that you guys think would be helpful? Um, and at least in my group, there was a consensus that something on studying the Bible the term that those uh, seminary guys threw out was hermeneutics. And so that's what we're going to cover is basically hermeneutics. And we'll, if you don't know what that is, then hopefully you will know what that is by the end of the night. But it has to do with interpreting the Bible rightly. So this group is named Bereans. I didn't give it that name. I don't even know who gave it that name, but that is the name of the group. And it comes from Acts chapter 17. Uh, verses 10 through 12, and this is what it says. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these, that is the Bereans, were mo more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with not a few prominent Greek women and men. So the idea behind this group being called Bereans is that you would be faithful examiners of the Word, that you would receive it with eagerness, and that you would do this daily. In other words, that you would take Bible study seriously. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is how to do that. So the topic, as mentioned, is hermeneutics, which defined is the theory or methodology of interpretation, particularly when it's dealing with biblical interpretation. So it is the science, the art of interpretation. There are rules for interpreting the Bible. Actually, there's rules for interpreting any text, and most of you do it without even realizing that you're doing it. Some of you may have some rules that are kind of good or kind of not good, but that's just how it is, and this is a good thing. There are rules to driving a car, and this is a good thing, and you should not drive a car if you do not know uh, the rules, and so it is with Scripture. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here we see that the Lord expects us to handle His Word rightly. And so there is a right way and there is a wrong way to handle His Word. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So what is it to be approved? As a workman who does not need to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be approved. Accurately handling the Word of truth. So what is it to be ashamed? It is to not accurately or not with accuracy to handle God's word. It is to be sloppy with it. it. It is to approach it in a haphazard way and to not derive from it the correct meaning. And the issue is there's just not a lot of people in our world, particularly the wider evangelical wor world, that approach the Bible in this way. And so what I want to do tonight mainly is to help you see the importance of this, because maybe you've never really thought about this before. Some of you, I'm sure, have. Others, maybe not. I want you to understand the importance of it. And then from there, uh, maybe the next time we come to this, we're going to look at the specific principles that lead to a right 
interpretation. So basically what we're dealing with is when you read the Bible, how do you know that the meaning that you've derived is correct? How do you know that this just isn't something that you're kind of making up or reading into the text? That's what we're after. And so when you're sitting around a table and you're having a discussion and one of your friends like, well, yeah, I really like this verse. and This is what it means to me. And then you're like, well, I think it means this. Okay, well, how do you come to the correct meaning? What are the rules that help you to determine that? It is extremely important because here's the thing. All of you might have a Bible. It can even be sitting in your lap. But if you don't have the correct meaning, you don't have the Bible. You understand? If you don't have the correct meaning of the Bible, you actually don't have the Word of God. MacArthur has repeatedly made this statement, the meaning of the text is the text. If you don't have the meaning of the text, you don't have the text. The actual meaning, what God meant by what He put in there, that's the inspired Word of God. So we're not looking for, when we come to the Bible, what does chance think it means? We're not looking for what does John MacArthur think it means or what John Hagee or John Owen or any of these people. We're asking ourselves, what does God mean by this? What did the Apostle Paul mean, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when he first wrote this? And when you have that, you have the meaning to the Bible. And that's what hermeneutics is all about. And so what I want to do tonight is give you four reasons why hermeneutics is crucial, why Bible interpretation, a right one, is crucial. And so the first one is exactly what I just said. A right hermeneutic is crucial. It is crucial. It is everything, you might say. When you walk into, and maybe you never do this, but if you were to walk into a seminary library, and really any library that you walk into on a seminary campus, you're going to find this laid out in a certain order. The first section is going to be biblical introduction. These are all introductions to the Bible, introduction to books of the Bible, these kind of things. And you're going to also run into biblical languages. This is important. And then also hermeneutics, all within section one. And then you're going to move on to commentaries. These are things that are written to help us understand different books of the Bible. And then you're going to come to biblical theology. This is theology as you trace it through the Bible. And so you're going to take a topic, sin, and you're going to trace that through the Bible, right? Redemption, trace that through the Bible. And then you're going to have systematic theology. This is another section. And this is going to systematize these different topics in the Bible, putting it all together uh, to form an idea. And then you're going to have things like church history, counseling, all of these other types of things. But the reason it's laid out that way is because they're trying to make the point that hermeneutics is foundational. Biblical languages is foundational. In other words, if you don't have a right hermeneutic, guess what? Commentaries are all off. Biblical theology is all off. Systematic theology is all off. You're going to give bad counsel. You're going to give bad application. All of these things are going to be off. Therefore, hermeneutics is foundational. It is everything. And maybe even more so today. Because we live in a day where the Bible and the meaning of the Bible is being challenged. We live in an increasingly hostile world when it comes to Christianity. And so people may stop and ask you, how do you know it means that? And if you're not sure, that's going to quickly become a problem. 
And ultimately, whether you say it or not, if you are sure, somewhere along the line, it has to do with hermeneutics, how you actually got that interpretation. And really what you're looking for is based upon the principles that I've applied to the Bible, I know for sure this is what God said. And if you know for sure this is what God said, guess what? There's authority in the text. That being the case, you can't move from it. I'm convinced, I'm sure, but if you're not sure, well, I guess it doesn't really matter. You can have your meaning, I can have my meaning, no big deal. It's extremely important. Matthew 7.28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Where did that authority come from? He had a perfect hermeneutic, therefore he had a perfect interpretation, and therefore his preaching, which was based upon the perfect interpretation, was full of authority. But do you realize, you don't have to be a preacher to say something that's full of authority. If you have the Word of God rightly interpreted, you've handled it rightly, when you go to evangelize your friend, you're speaking with authority based upon the Bible. And so this is what we want. And by the way, when you tell someone something that is right, it's true, you've got the correct interpretation, there's only one thing left for them to do. Obey. You can either obey or disobey. That's the choice that's left up. But if you don't have the right interpretation, well, then you're not led to that point. Now you're still at a discussion level, and we're just going to talk about whether we should or should not, whether this is right or, or not, and you just keep living the way that you want. If the text doesn't have clarity, there isn't any authority. And this is what you do. And Satan, by the way, loves this. Our flesh loves this. Our world operates from a state of confusion. And so if you're talking to someone and maybe you have, you're talking about drinking or purity for marriage or whatever it may be, and you have someone who's tempted to play around in those areas, typically what's going to happen is they're going to start confusing what the Bible has said about this. Or they're going to be like, well, it's not, it's not really that clear on there. Because you know what you do when you make it not clear? Then you can play around. There's no convictions. Do whatever you want. But if you have a solid conviction based upon the Word of God, then it's so help me, God. And it goes with all kinds of things. Forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, the way that you handle your time. Uh, all of these things should be based upon right interpretation. That's how you get a correct conviction. And even if you aren't malicious in your wrong interpretation, let's just say it's laziness that led to it. God will still hold you accountable for that because he expects his word to be handled rightly. James 3.1, Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. Matthew 18.6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You're not careful with the word of God? You give someone the wrong interpretation that leads them to sin, or, or let's just say you're not 
clear with your convictions and you leave the door open in order for them to go in the wrong direction, Jesus is saying it'd be like tying a millstone around someone's neck, leading them into sin. So we can't plead ignorance. A right hermeneutic is crucial. Now the flip side, second point, a wrong hermeneutic is detrimental. And you also might say this, it's ubiquitous. In other words, it's everywhere. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people interpret the Bible wrongly. And here's the thing you need to realize. A right hermeneutic in interpreting the Bible rightly does not come automatic. It takes hard work. And you might think that because we're in a day and age where everybody has access to a Bible, that it's just great to get them to read the Bible. I like basketball, so you might say it's great if I just get someone to play basketball. But then if I get someone to play basketball and they go in an actual game and they don't know the rules of the game, that's not going to be great. And it's the same way with the Bible. It is great in one sense to have them read on any level, but if they're misinterpreting it all over the place, if they don't know how to interpret it, then that could actually do more harm than good. And so the end of Bible reading is not just Bible reading. It's not just checking it off and then you're done, you're good. The end of it is to make sure that you've studied hard to get the right meaning so that you can apply it right in your life. So misinterpretation is common. Let me give you a few examples. For those poor souls who spent three hours of your life or four hours watching the Super Bowl, you may have seen a commercial, He Gets Us. He Gets Us was a commercial all about foot washing. This is the Christian commercial. We're going to have a commercial about foot washing, okay? And it's various different people washing people's feet in various different circumstances. Really, the point of the ad was to say that Christians should be known not for what they're against, but for their service and love for people, which on the face of it is not a bad message. But of course, that theology is based upon a misinterpretation of the Bible. And basically, what it gets wrong is the idea that we can just smile someone into heaven. That we would never have to oppose someone, or that Jesus never corrected someone. Of course it's not true. And so that message is wrong. That's not what he was communicating when he washed the disciples' feet. So how did they get there? They started with an idea that they loved, that Christians should just be nice as long as we're nice, then perhaps we would have an outlet to speak about Christ. And now they're going to read that into the text, foot washing, and blast that out to everyone as if people seeing other people wash feet during the Super Bowl is going to save anyone. It's a wrong interpretation of the text. Or here's another one from a motivational calendar. This is what it says on March 10th, Luke 4, 7. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. It's quite a promise. Motivational. But if you go to context, what's the context? It's the temptation of Christ who's speaking there, Satan. So if you don't want to worship Satan, uh, that's not going to go well for you. So someone obviously did not do their homework. Or here's another one. I really like this one. This is an invitation to a ladies' tea party. And this is what it said at the bottom. But it is you, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. Come to the ladies' tea party. 
Everybody open up to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Again, someone forgot to do their homework. And this is the context starting in verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst, oppression and fraud do not depart from the marketplace. For it is an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. If it was an enemy, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, my a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. That's the verse right there. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house while we were walking in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Same verse is used as the reference to Judas in the New Testament. So I guess if you want to invite a lot of people who are going to stab you in the back, this is the kind of verse <laughs> you want to use for your A's tea party. Another one on an adult coloring book from the book of Nahum. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger or gracious. And so here you go, you're going to color a nice thing. It's going to be nice and calming. Um, and the context is the Ninevites. And by the way, the context is to basically say, yes, the Lord is slow to anger and he is gracious, but you have rejected him. Therefore, he is a jealous and avenging God, wrathful. He takes vengeance on all of his adversaries. Maybe not the best calming verse. Or here's one story I heard of a man who visited a church. Pastor asked his congregation this question What is your favorite animal? He said, turn to Isaiah 53.6, because it has to be a sheep. He says, all we like sheep. And they stop. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's the rest of the verse. Right? And, and so people take it out of context all the time. Now those are all kind of like dumb ones and silly ones. And you're thinking, surely they didn't actually take that serious. Unfortunately, some of them did take that serious. But there's also those ones where people are going to knock on your door, and they're going to take things out of context in a way that maybe is a little harder to combat. Here's one, Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witness is going to take that and say, see, there you go, Jesus is created. He's the firstborn of all creation. Gotcha. But the problem is, if you do your homework, you know that firstborn in all creation, what is that referring to? It's referring to his preeminence, his importance, right? As a firstborn, he has all inheritance. And so it's different within the Greek culture. It didn't mean that in that sense. And so you have to have an understanding of these things. Or here's one currently being used by the LGBTQ community, Galatians 3.27. For as many of you that were baptized in Christ Jesus have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. No more genders, no more ethnicities, we're all one in Christ. It sounds great, but it's not in context. The context is not erasing all differences. The context is saying, despite the differences, we're one in Christ. Even though there are male and female and Jew and Gentile, 
and all these different things. We are one in Christ. This is how great Christ is. But again, you don't get that if you don't have a Christ hermeneutic. Or speaking of Catholics, Matthew 16, 18, I was listening to a debate between a Catholic and a Protestant just a couple days ago that Nikki shared with me. And here was a verse that he brought up for justification of the authority of the Pope. And I tell you, Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so he says, there it is, right there. He's saying that Peter is the foundation that establishes the authority of the Pope and the line, the succession line that goes from Pope to Pope to Pope. But a better understanding of the language and the context shows that he's not referring to Peter, but Peter's confession. Matthew 16, 15. He said to him, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father and who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is this rock? The rock is the confession Peter just gave, that Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. And so misunderstandings are possible. It's possible to misinterpret the scriptures. It's possible to twist the scriptures. And there are people out there who are very much twisting the scriptures. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.15, Our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Yet there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant... And the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Who is it that's going to twist? Those who are ignorant of how to handle God's word. Ignorant of how important it is to handle it rightly. And also those who are unstable are just living upon their own desires. And you come at the scripture with any other desire that I want to glorify the Lord. What's going to happen? You're going to twist it so that you might have really the justification that you can build those desires. And that goes on all the time. Another way that maybe you do it, or we can do it without noticing, would just be to read yourself into every text. And so when you're at the grocery store and someone tricks you, and then you go and read the Psalms, and it's talking about affliction, and there you go, that's my affliction for that day. It's very different than David, who's just been betrayed and lost all this, and lost his son. But for you, there are a lot of good tricks in the grocery store, so you're reading yourself into that. And the reason we do that is because if we don't get ourselves into it, it must not be important. Philippians 3.14, I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Tim Tebow's going to take that, and he's going to write it right here, right? He's talking about winning football games. It actually is talking about being content. Whether or not you win the football game. Being content in Christ. You have a lot of money or a little money. And so each verse has a correct context and has a correct meaning. And we want to get to the correct meaning. So all of this assumes something. That when you open up the Bible, you need to work hard 
to get direct meaning. You can't just read it and assume automatically that you know exactly what it means. And guess what? If you read it and you think to yourself at the end of reading it, I have no idea what that meant. Welcome to the club. I do that all the time. I read something like an Amos, and you know what my first thought is? What on earth am I going to say on Thursday? I have no idea what this means. But you know something? That's like the best thought you can have, because now you're in a state of humility where you can go back and start asking the right questions. Okay, I've got a little work to do. I know it means something. I need to ask some questions, and I need to get down to what this means. Look at the context. Do a little study. There's no room for laziness Not certain, you're not going to open your mouth. If you are certain, 
Christian biographies. John G. Patton, why on earth did this guy go to an island full of cannibals to preach the gospel? Because he knew it was the power of God unto salvation. And so he went, he proclaimed it, he believed it was true. All the martyrs, why were they willing to die? It wasn't because they were like, ah, maybe, I hope it's right. They were absolutely convinced. So convinced they were willing to go all the way to the stake and to give their very life for it. So, knowing this, what do you think Satan's strategy is? Doubt, confusion, a lack of clarity, uncertainty. I mentioned the debate with the Catholic and the Protestant. I can tell you how the debate started. The Catholic person who used to be a Protestant started questioning to the point where he was not certain of anything. Where does that come from? This is a suppression of the truth strategy. Genesis 3.1. What's the question? Now the servant was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... Did he really say that? Are you sure that that's what he meant? Now we've just opened up the possibility that maybe that's not what he meant. And so therefore, the authority goes away. Perhaps I can disobey. Satan is still running the same play. All this assumes something really important. This assumes that what God has written is clear. It's a document of Scripture. I love this, the name of this document of Scripture. It's called the Perspicuity of Scripture, which means the clarity of Scripture. So they picked a really unclear word to talk about the clarity of Scripture. But the doctrine is basically this, that what God has written is clear. It can be understood. Well, I can tell you the hermeneutic of this world is that it's unclear. Everything is unclear. Because if you throw up everything as there's no way to be certain, then guess what that means? You're God, and you can do whatever you want. And then they're doing it with everything. They're doing it with the Bible. They're doing it with the Constitution. Uh, they're doing it with, all, with gender roles, everything. There's nothing that's for certain. There's no law that's for certain. Everything can be questioned, and therefore we can do whatever we want. It all comes down to, has God really said this? And in this kind of questioning world, if you have someone who then comes and Amos and says, guess what? This is what God said? You know what that's labeled? Hate. That's hateful. That's full of pride. But actually it's flipped. The hateful thing is to be uncertain. The proud thing is to act as if you can't understand what God has said. He's spoken clearly, and what you're saying is, God is unclear. It's a suppression of the truth tactic. It's a hermeneutic all aimed at doing whatever you want. Sometimes this ends in homosexuality. Other times it ends in sex before marriage. Other times it ends in drinking. Other times it ends in just a really weird violent interpretation that takes a long time but eventually takes you away from Christ. So we must keep uncertainty out of the church. 
Psalm 119, the arrogant have smeared me with lime. With all of my heart, I observe your precepts. The arrogant, the proud, is saying he's lying. Can't be sure. The humble man says, with all of my heart, I'm going to observe your precepts. Because I know it's what you said. So the world, this is a case where everyone's being tossed to and fro by the ways of their own desires. We must anchor ourselves to Scripture, and the only way you can do that is to know with absolute certainty that this is what God says. And so let me end with this last point. It's this. God cares about who it is. He cares a lot. Here's about how you handle His Word. Deuteronomy 18, 18. In fact, everybody turn to there. Deuteronomy 18, 18. He's cared since the very beginning of giving His Word. This is an important text in the Bible. It begins with God saying that he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. It says in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, like Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Basically, you can act like you don't understand it, or you can refuse to listen, but God will still require it of you, because I have called that man to speak. In other words, God expects you, the listener, so don't think this is just on preachers, he expects you, the listener, the Koreans, to understand it, to weigh it, to study it, and then to obey it, especially if you have the privilege of sitting under preaching in the Bible, of living in a land where on your phone you can access millions of great sermons all the time. He expects you to obey it. Deuteronomy 18.20 But the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, but which he speaks in the name of other gods, other translations, if there is a prophet that speaks something in my name that I did not say, Say something before God has actually spoken, or beyond what He has actually spoken, but the punishment for that? Death. That prophet shall die. So God takes it very seriously. Deuteronomy 18, 21, Now you may say in your heart, How will we know the word which Yahweh has spoken? There's so many people out there that are saying so many different interpretations. How do I know which one is right? How can we tell the difference between a false prophet and a true one? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, the thing does not come about or come true. That is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall be afraid of them. Meaning, if you cannot verify it, don't accept it. In that day and age, what was verification? He was speaking about future things. It didn't come true. This is a false prophet. Now the canon has been closed. There's no more prophecies being given. Therefore, you are to be like a Berean. How can you know? You study God's word, handle it rightly, to know whether what is being said is in accordance with God's word. 2 Timothy 1.3 Hold to the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. 2 Timothy 2.14 Remind them of these things. What are these things? 
2 Timothy 2 1. You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Reminding of these things, charging them in the presence of God. What is that? Things that I've taught. Things that you've been taught. Read in the Word of God, in order to remind yourself of these things. And then he goes on to say this not to dispute about words. What does that mean? Every time that phrase is used, that combination, it means to work against something. Literally, what it's saying is not to have a war against your words. Not to say, I can't understand it. There's no meaning in words. There's no certainty. Paul goes on to say, this is useless. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. And guess what? Uncertainty leads to that. What does that word ruin mean? It means destruction. Lives are ruined. Look throughout our culture and those who are uncertain about what God has said. They're living in such a way that is destroying their lives. Uncertainty leads to destruction. Therefore, here's our verse that we started with, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth, you know what that means? Set the path straight. If you have a straight path, you can see it for a long way. In other words, I know exactly what God is saying. I know exactly the path that I should walk on. What he's saying is don't put a bunch of twists and turns so that no one knows where to go. Get the right interpretation and say it very clearly so that people know exactly what it means. This is what you're aimed at. And if you don't have that, go back to the Word of God and keep studying it. As opposed to that, verse 16, we'll end going through verse 19. Avoid godless and empty chatter will lead to further ungodliness. And their word will spread like gangrene. Among those are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth. There once was the truth that they had, and gone astray from it, because of this godless and empty chatter, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. What is that? A misinterpretation of God's word. They have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. What is He saying? Anyone who comes to you and brings an interpretation of the Bible that causes someone to go into wickedness is a false prophet. Here is what you are to stand on. Everyone who names the name of Christ, of Lord, and then also preaches to depart from wickedness, that is to follow Christ, that's who you follow. Those who put the paths straight before you with a right interpretation. But those who come in and they confuse the matter, stay far, far away from them. So all of you have a responsibility, not only to stay far away from them, but also to speak clarity into a world that is extremely confused. You're only going to do that if you're absolutely
Thank you, Father. We pray this in